Like so many others, I was saddened to hear of the death of Leonard Nimoy this past week. Known widely for his portrayal of the character Spock in the original Star Trek series and in some of the later ones as well. Spock, as you may remember, was half human, half Vulcan. The Vulcans were a race of beings from another planet who were, so, who were logical and rational all the time. That's who they were, right? Millions of fans found him fascinating. Someone very like us, but not a slave to his emotions like many of us seem to be. Didn't get all angry and upset all the time, right? He just said, well, this is what's logical to do. And for many watchers, he was a symbol of where humanity is headed or should be headed. Many people felt that way. An example of how we would eventually evolve, leaving behind superstition and passion in favor of logic Hard, cold logic. As an aside, I have heard that President Obama is called by some people as a nickname Spock because he tends to be rational, um, which is certainly a disadvantage for him politically, I think. Apparently, Leonard Nimoy was not exactly like Spock in his own life. As a matter of fact, he even at one point wrote an autobiographical book entitled I Am Not Spock, which caused great consternation among his fans. There was a huge uproar about this until later in his life he wrote another one called I Am Spock. <laughs> I guess his public demanded it. Life was weird back in the 20th century. <laughs> We've evolved so much. <laughs> One of the things Spock was famous for, as you know, was the Vulcan sign of friendship, right? The V-shaped hand sign, accompanied by the words, live long and prosper. Apparently, Leonard Nimoy first saw this hand sign as a young boy of about eight or nine during a religious ceremony with his father and his grandfather who were Jewish performing a kind of mysterious ritual that he later found out was a ritual for the goddess. And when it came time in the ceremony to make this sign, his father told him not to look, told him to keep his eyes down. But of course he did. And that moment remained fixed in his mind so intensely that later on he used that, a similar sign in the Star Trek series. And that became the famous V sign that was part of this Jewish worship service when he was a kid. It turns out that the sign stands for the first letter of a word in Hebrew, which I 
have heard pronounced before, and I may not get it exactly right, but it's the way I remember it being pronounced, Shekinah. Shekinah is the name of a goddess in Hebrew legend and lore. And so the sign in the ancient service that Leonard Nimoy uh, was a witness to as a kid is the first letter of her name. So that's where the sign comes from. At least if you can believe things that other people have written, that's, that's where the sign comes from. And it was such a, it was a very um, impressive experience for him and really stuck with him. And so that's, that's the story of the sign. Uh, later in his life, Nimoy did a book of photographs of female figures that was entitled Shekinah and was published and he did a number of um, lectures and tours related to this book and got in a lot of trouble actually from some more conservative Jewish leaders for doing this book on really the goddess. So, what it fascinates me about this story, just, I mean, it's just a great story of where something came from, but it also, to me, suggests that even in the situations where we think we're completely rational and not influenced by myth or legend or anything like that, that there's often myths and legends and dreams and imaginary experiences lingering all around. That would be my guess. So I, I offer that thought to you for your meditation. I have been a fan of all the Star Trek series, and when I think of the future of humanity, that is the first set of images that comes to my mind. It's going to be like Star Trek. So just go watch those movies and you'll know what it's going to be like. But the reality is that I do not know what the future is going to be like. You know, Jan makes me give her a sermon title, and so I have to come up with something. So I thought, that's a great thing to think about. It's fun to think about the future, and in a way, I think it gives us a lens through which we view our present questions and our worries and our dreams and our hopes. We think, what is the future going to be like? Because we know on some intuitive level that what we're doing now is going to be part of shaping that. We know that we have some influence on that. Of course, one could imagine a number of scenarios in which things turn out badly. We are all aware of those possible outcomes. There could be some there could be some very serious outcomes. Our ecological problems are serious enough that extreme ecological degradation could easily be the main feature of the next few hundred years. That's quite possible, quite possible. So that's a huge question that has yet to be answered and we know that what we do in this time will influence what that will look like. We, we know that that's true. It's also quite possible 
that we humans will seriously degrade our prospects on earth by the ridiculously obsolete but ever popular human custom known as war. It's quite possible that that could get out of hand and really shape the future. And as a matter of fact, a lot of things that are happening on our planet right now make it abundantly clear that this is a strong tendency of humanity. And if we're really going to have a bright future, we will have to come to terms with that. We'll have to find other ways to resolve disputes and live together. So those are a couple of the possibilities for um, visions of the future that are not joyful and uplifting to us. But let's suppose that we figure out how to deal with these twin scenarios of planetary war and ecological degradation. Let's suppose that we are wise enough and resourceful enough and caring enough and far-reaching in our vision enough to avoid these pitfalls, would there still be religion in the future? And if there is religion two or three or four or 500 years from now, would it be similar to what is happening at the moment? Would it be something to what, similar to what we call religion now? Even in our present day, Religion, as a dimension of human culture, is not looking great overall on the planet. It's not, it's not in a period of increasing respect, with some wonderful exceptions. But the bad behavior of many religions, or at least some people acting in the name of religion, they're many situations that are creating a negative image of all religions in many eyes. Indeed, I would suggest that if religion is to survive, one of the things it will have to do to survive is to convince humanity that the radical fringes do not speak for all. It will have to do that. And I would suggest that at the moment, religion is losing that public relations discussion. It's not doing that. Religion, if it is to survive, will have to create strong identities that look and, in fact, are life-supporting and healing and show that to the world. Because right now the world is not convinced that that is a really true statement. So that's, that's something that is yet to be decided. That was one of the main points of our speaker last week, Imam Mufti, who argued so strenuously with all his heart that the people right now who are using the name of Islam to do all sorts of uh, horrible things, he is arguing with all his heart and passion that that's not what Islam is. So he's, he's part of that effort to try to present a different face to the public. And the problem is also serious in Christianity and other religions too, that some of the, some of the least 
uplifting elements are creating the impression that they are, in fact, what religion is. So this is a huge question for religion, both in the near future and the distant future. Will religion contribute to the progress of humanity, or will it be seen as a force that holds us back and that also makes life more dangerous? So that, that is a question to be answered. The, the Einstein quotation that is on the cover today presents another way of looking at the future of religion. He makes a really definite statement, which I offer you uh, as a possible way of looking at the future of religion. He says the religion of the future will be a cosmic religion. It should transcend personal God and avoid dogma and theology. Covering both the natural and the spiritual, it should be based on a religious sense arising from the experience of all things natural and spiritual as a meaningful unity. What a fascinating statement that he made. So that's one possibility for how religion may be viewed in the future. I want to tell you that both the theists and the atheists claim that Einstein is on their side. So I just want you to know that. He's, he's claimed as a hero of both camps. And that's a fascinating situation because indeed Einstein does not believe in a personal God that intervenes in human history, but he does believe, or perhaps believe is not exactly the right word, but he affirms what he calls cosmic religion a religion that responds with wonder and perhaps even with praise to the ultimate reality of the universe itself or the multiverse or whatever the sum total of reality might be called. He responds in a, what he calls a sense of cosmic religion to that. I would suggest that that is one of the paths that might be taken by religion in the future. Not the only one by any means. Michael Dowd, who's a guy who spoke here several years ago, who um, is extraordinarily involved in science and religion and the dialogue between them, particularly evolution and religion. Michael Dowd talks about something similar. He says the universe is like a set of Russian dolls. Have you seen those dolls where there's one doll inside another doll and inside another one and so on? He says the universe is like that. There are atoms within molecules and molecules within cells and cells within organisms. And so it's a big set of Russian dolls. And if you Consider the largest, most inclusive level of all, the level that includes all the other levels, then according to Michael Dowd, we could, if we wish to, call that God. It would be the totality of reality viewed as a kind of organism, an all-inclusive organism. But that is a choice, not a requirement. Michael tours around with his life partner, Connie Barlow, and they put on these amazing presentations about um, religion and evolution. 
And they seem to really do extremely well together. And he says he's a theist, and she says she's an atheist. And they basically say everything else pretty much the same. Thomas Berry, a priest who became what he calls a geologian, says that the universe itself is the primary religious text. The universe itself is the primary religious text. We have what we call religious texts. We have the Bible, we have the Bhagavad Gita. He says the universe is the text to be read and studied. What a powerful statement. What many of these newer, more science-friendly ideas of religion have in common is that the universe itself becomes the object of praise. The universe itself becomes what is sacred. All of it. All of it. In contrast to what is a more common theistic position now that there is a personal being who somehow has an identity which is not identical with the universe itself. And by the way, that position doesn't show any sign of, of going away either. So there could be multiple views carrying on. It may be that if such a shift occurs in human culture, the shift towards more of the Einstein view of the cosmic sense of the non-personal sense of religion or God, it may be that at some point that will no longer be called religion. I think that is a possible thing that might happen. I don't know. As I said, religion has a bad name in many quarters, so we don't know how that will play out. It is always a problem to name anything. It is always a problem to put a name on anything. Another possibility we might want to consider, especially in light of many popular films and books, is a whole group of ideas that could be thought of as variations on an impersonal something, like, for example, the force. May the, may the force be with you. You know, the force is one of these quasi-spiritual somethings that made its debut in Star Wars, a series, by the way, with many religious overtones. We have a kind of uh, semi-monastic cult called the Jedi, who can do sort of magical things by intuition. So these are, this is, again, we, we see a situation in which something that is futuristic and rationalistic gets also invaded by uh, intuitive, sort of semi-magical overtones. The force is something to be sensed intuitively rather than analyzed empirically. What does, they tell Luke, you know, close your eyes. What do you mean close my eyes? You know, that there's a different kind of perception that's needed. 
to know the force. It's like, it may be kind of like meditation, actually, in a way. This idea of the force really sounds very similar to what's called the Tao in ancient Chinese religion, or Brahman in the tradition that we now call Hinduism. They're all examples of spiritual imagery of a non-personal quality. The force is not anthropomorphic. It's not a god. It's not a goddess. It's not a person. It's not made into an image of a human being. It's something beyond those kinds of images. It's impersonal. It's subtle. It's pervasive. It's inherent in things. It's not separate from things as they are. It's in this room. No, it's in the chairs, it's in the flowers, it's in the candles. So these ways of imaging a kind of unity of reality, a kind of unity of reality. It is, an, it is a kind of authority, but it's not a being, it's not a creature. Like Einstein, these approaches do not reference a personal God, so they're not really concerned with dogma or theology in our current sense. They are inclusive models. They may or may not be identified with religion. They don't need to be identified with religion, but they could be. They could be, and in some traditions, they clearly are. Taoism would be a great example of that. They are not primarily about discrete realities, but about the nature of all reality. If religion survives for 500 years, I think this is one of the candidates for where it might go. One of the candidates. <clears throat> Sam Harris, who is someone you may have read or heard of, is part of a group called the New Atheists. And he says something that I think is right on. He says that if you take all the ancient trappings away from religion, take away all the myths, all the superstitions, all of that, that three human needs still stand, which are addressed by religions. One of them is the need for community. We need potluck dinners or something similar, something that would do the same thing, that would make us feel drawn together with each other. We need to sing together, to meet together, to feel like we belong. So that's one deep human need that religions have answered in the, in the past and up to the present. We have a need for ethics. That's number two. We have a need for ethical standards to say that you can do these things, but you can't do these things, and we, that's the way we're going to live in peace. It's by setting those ethical standards. So far in human history, religion has supplied much of these ethical foundations, although it has failed miserably in some cases, just horrible failures. Nevertheless, throughout human history, it has been religion that has, for the most part, 
supplied these ethical standards. Perhaps science will take over that field at some point, but it, that does not, it's not yet clear that that would happen. For the most part, scientists do not tell you, you know, what you should do morally. That's not, in general, what science does. Maybe they will figure out how to do that. And the third thing that Harris says we all need, and this is a strange thing for him to say as an atheist, but he says we all need spiritual experience. What an amazing thing for him to say. We all need spiritual experience. Now what does that mean? Does that mean everybody has to go to church or everybody has to worship a God? What does that mean? I think what he means is that we all need to feel like we're part of a larger reality. And you know what? We are part of a larger, I mean, there isn't any way to dispute that that I know of. We are, in fact, part of a larger reality. You know, communities, planets, solar systems, you know, galaxies, covenant circles, lunch groups. You know, we are part of larger realities. And he says, we have a need to have that experience. This is why people do all kinds of things, dance together, sing together, meditate, all these amazing things. You don't have to call that larger reality God, but you could. You could if you choose to do that. You could call that lar larger reality God, or, but you don't have to. You could call it nature if you want to, or you can call it the universe if you want to, or you can call it the Tao, or you can call it the goddess, or you can call it Brahman, or you could call it some other name that you make up. That's okay. But what he says is that we have a need to feel that connection. And I think that's true. Whatever it is, it is our source. It's where we came from, and it is our home. And we long to feel connected to it. And when we do feel connected in that way, we feel good about life. And when we feel very, very separated and alone and isolated, we usually don't feel good. Because connection feels right to us. And that is where all these myths and stories come from. They're ways of trying to talk about being connected. And so, one way or the other, we will find ways to do these things. We'll find ways to be together in community. We'll make our ethical standards and live by them. And we will find some way in whatever stage of history to feel that sense of connection. Those things will continue. And I believe also that another thing that will continue unless we really take a wrong turn will be what came out of the Edict of Torda, this sense of freedom, to believe as we wish. I think that will become the common currency of humanity, unless we take a bad turn. But if we're wise, and if we pay attention, that will become part of the future 
as well. We will find ways to do these things in many different techniques, many different practices, using many words and many images. Live long and prosper.